Uh, let me pray before we get into this. Holy Spirit, we invite you here now to um, fill this space, fill our hearts, fill our minds. Uh, you are our counselor, our advocate, our guide. We ask that you would teach us, that you would unpack what we're going to look at today. That all of Jason would fall away and all of what you would say to us would be made clear. Lord Jesus, we fall at your feet. We are overwhelmed with the issues in life. We have absolutely no power to change hearts or even to change minds for that matter. We have no power, but you do. So we, we are sinners that are saved. We are muddling through this, and you are changing us and shaping us and forming us. And we want to submit to your, your hand in that. So we, this morning, just one more time we say to you that we lay down our life and we ask that you would take it up and do with it what you will and that you would shape us. That we would, our pride would be crucified on that cross along with you. That everything about us, like John the Baptist said, he must become greater, I must become less. We ask for that attitude in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, turn with me in, uh, to the book of Nehemiah, page 329 in your pew Bibles. And as you're turning there, uh, I'll give you a little history. The story of Nehemiah is after Haggai's story that we read a few weeks back, if you remember that, if you were here, where he rebuilt the temple in that story. And it begins, Nehemiah begins with a dire message from Nehemiah's brother about the state of disrepair in Jerusalem. And the effects of the exile had worn down the city, the temple, and the walls of Jerusalem were, had suffered this destruction, right? And so this left Nehemiah with this sort of broken heart and this clear call, which we see in chapter 1, verse 4, when he says this. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So it just struck him. It was important to him, right? And so what he noticed is that they had to rebuild, right? They had to relearn how to worship God again. They had all been in exile. They had not been practicing these things for years. So Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem for this very purpose, right? Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, and he brought the people from dis despair to a fresh new walk with God by giving them a fresh new look at God's Word. And that's the central focus of this book. Long before this, long before Nehemiah, King David had been shown Jerusalem to be the place for the construction of the temple, if you remember that where God would dwell with his people, this, this place. And it was a visual reminder of his presence as well as a foreshadowing of the New Testament when God would dwell in the hearts of, of his people. 
And we see that in 1 Corinthians 6.19 where it says, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The church would be eventually the living temple of God. I hope you see yourself that way if you're in Christ. And after David and well before Nehemiah, we remember Solomon, right? King Solomon and the effect of his sin on, the, on Israel when the kingdom was, kingdom was split in two in 931 B.C. We, we have to remember it goes down in numbers till you get to year zero. Some people are like confused by that. So 931 B.C. And, and at that time there were ten tribes in the north and two in the south. Uh, Judah and Benjamin stayed in the south, and these tribes continued in their sin until uh, 722 B.C. The northern tribes fell to the Assyrians, and they were assimilated into other cultures. They were lost. And then in 586 B.C., the tribes to the south fell to the Babylonians. And so Satan had divided and conquered through the willing sin of God's people of Israel, right? And that's a fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30, which speaks of the blessings that Israel would experience if they walked with God, if they followed the Lord, and the curses that she would experience if she had turned away from Him. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, it says this, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, this is the Lord speaking to them, and you take them to the heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you, right? So due to Israel's stubborn sin and her reluctance to be a light to the nations, to be a witness to those very nations that surrounded her and would would travel through her, right? God scattered Israel among those nations, right? They were self-focused, and they were not focused on his kingdom. They were not God-focused. And in 539 B.C., when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, many uh, Jews returned to their homeland, although not all. And then after many years of hardship, they succeeded in rebuilding the temple in 515 B.C. under uh, Zerubbabel. And then 458 B.C., another group returns to Jerusalem under the lead of Ezra, who reinstituted instituted temple worship and uh, reestablished sort of a spiritual life for Israel. Then it was in 444 B.C. when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem to continue his work of rebuilding, particularly the walls of the city and other aspects of the nation of Israel. So that's where we are. That's the history of Israel up to this point. But what does all that tell us, right? Well, I think the first thing it does is it reveals the devastating effect that sin has on a community. The dev- and we've seen that. We, whatever churches we've been involved with, we've seen the devastating effects that sin has on a community, haven't we? Around 500 years of devastation and then rebuilding, beginning at least with the sin of one man, King Solomon, right? The scattering of Israel is a visual reminder of a life that is broken apart 
dismantled by sin. The body separated, unable to support itself and, or to heal or to minister to its other members. However, we know that God is always faithful to draw people back to himself. And in drawing them back to himself, he draws them back to each other as well, doesn't he? The body of Israel coming together one more time to worship again. And that's a picture of a person or the church becoming whole again in Christ. Before this, in the years 605 to 562 B.C., Babylon was at the height of power. And as a result, Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed with its people deported from Judea. And the rise of Babylon and the decline of Jerusalem gives us a picture of sin that poisons God's kingdom peace, right? Under leaders like Nehemiah, though, the people were called back to God. Called back. But we must realize, we must remember that back does not mean backwards. Back does not mean backwards, right? Remember, Ecclesiastes 7.10, one of my favorite verses lately, says, do not say, why were the old days better than these? Right? Why were the old days better than these? Because we tend to have selective memories, don't we? We tend to look back on our history with sort of rose-colored glasses disregarding the sin of our past, don't we? So we say we have to get back to God to return to some better time, back to a time where, that we enjoyed, that we felt comfortable, that we felt safe during a particular period of time, right? But maybe it's a time when we mistakenly assume that we were really following God well. But if we're honest, we all emerge from checkered pasts, don't we? Some things we may advocate getting back to aren't things to which we should return. Back to God cannot mean backwards for His people. Rather, it is going forward in Him, returning to His original call, but in a new context, right? Return, you know, repenting of our past sin, turning away from that, allowing Him to purify us for future ministry. For Israel, going back to life before would be going back to the very sin which caused dispersion in the first place, what broke her apart. What they needed to get back to was truly worshiping God in obedience, which comes through faith in His Word, in His promises, and not to what they were, they were before. So we must move forward, progressing in our understanding of what it truly means to worship the Lord with our lives. And that is a difficult thing, since in our faltering sort of walk with God, we constantly battle old thoughts and old patterns. And if you're a part of the Sonship group, these are the things that that dredges up out of you. We are palimpsests. Sure, you all know that word, right? <laughs> That's a new word for me, too, right? Palimpsests were Roman waxed tablets on which they would scratch a message into the tablet, and then when they wanted to use it again, they would just sort of uh, wipe it away and then scratch a new one in there. But the problem was there was often a, a remnant of the old writing on that tablet. It wouldn't get totally wiped away. 
So you always, it always bled through, right? And so we're, likewise, we're, we're ne- we never come to the Lord or we never come to life as a blank slate. There's always something about our past or, or better said, our fleshly selves that bleeds through in whatever we do in life. God writes a new identity on our hearts in Christ. That is truth. But there is something written on us from before which needs to be addressed over time. We are being made holy. We are declared righteous, but we are being made holy in our walks. The old tapes which play in our heads, you know, uh, about ourselves and about others, you know, you'll, you'll never measure up. You'll never be good enough. God can't use you. Look what you just did. She'll never change. She'll always be that way. She can't change. Tapes playing in our heads, silently in our heads, only to ourselves, holding us back, undermining our relationships, and impeding our worship of the Lord. Like Israel, we only see backwards, right? It's difficult to look forward in faith, in newness in Christ. Remnant effects of past sins still scribbled on our lives. Under the surface, we constantly recite to ourselves. Yet in Christ, the truth is, we are fully redeemed. We are fully redeemed. God does not see the scribble underneath any longer. He sees Christ's righteousness on us. But we have a hard time seeing ourselves that way, don't we? A hard time acting in faith, giving up fear, giving up anxiety. So we hold on to that which comforts us. We run to things. Maybe we don't really believe that we have been fully restored. But in Christ, the truth is, the old has gone, the new has come. That you are a child, a son or daughter of the living God. That you are co-heirs with Christ. Those are amazing truths. You ever notice Jesus got frustrated with his disciples, right? And it wasn't because they were incapable, right? If that were the case, he would just go hire more capable disciples. But he didn't. Rather, he knew that they were already capable in him, but they just didn't get it. It wasn't their failure, per se, in things. It's, it's they, they, they didn't really realize who they were in Christ, and they weren't living out of it. Jesus makes us capable because of his perfect record that has been laid upon us. He chose us not because we are gifted, we're better than, we're more faithful than the next guy. Rather, it's because he transforms us. He changes us. But it seems too good to be true, doesn't it? This whole gospel thing. It does. It seems too good to be true. It doesn't make any sense to us. So we seek identity everywhere but in Him. Which shuts down our worship, doesn't it? It really does. We achieve. We push. We perform. We shop. We work out. 
We try to accomplish great, wonderful things, longing all the time to smooth out our broken image, to make ourselves presentable, not only to each other, but also to God. To erase the lines of our past. To create identity when it has already been given to us in Christ. The old self gone, the new self reborn in Christ, right? I don't have to prove to do anything, to achieve anything, to accomplish anything. I am totally and absolutely accepted and forgiven, and nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ, not even myself. I cannot lose my salvation because if I could, it would be up to me and not up to Him. When God the Father looks on me and on you, He sees the perfect record of God the Son and then and only then can we truly embrace and own verses like Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you, the almighty warrior who saves, who will take great delight in you, Listen to that. Who will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Do you think that God looks at you that way? I'm not blowing sunshine. I'm blowing truth, baby. This is true stuff. This is not fuzzy Jesus stuff. This is gospel hard, like granite stuff. And it's the stuff that we need to own. And it is the beginning and the heart of true worship in a person's life to grasp hold of these things. So there's Jerusalem, gates and walls in disrepair, laid bare before her enemies, vulnerable, unprotected, no defense, open to hurt and misery. How do you worship like that? We live in a world right now where people live with broken down walls. They are exposed to hurt. And worship is impeded as we fight all those unnecessary battles coming at us. But God repairs and renews. Just as he did with his people then. Writing over that past scribble. Restoring order and peace and unity and worship. The lesson of Nehemiah is this, like all the other lessons we we learn, that we need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. To repair, bringing recovery and healing to our lives. To believe that when, when he says we're a new creation, we actually own it. But it takes recognition and repentance to experience it. It takes a prayerful, worshipful heart, doesn't it? So read along with me, Nehemiah chapter 7. Go to chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 there. Then we're going to skip to chapter chapter 8. It says, After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed, and I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, Hanani, or whatever, however you say his name, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. 
Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. So he has these records, right? Now we go to Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood a bunch of guys that I don't really want to attempt to pronounce their names, so go to verse 5. Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen, and then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, again, a bunch of names, skip down a little bit, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. So with this wall rebuilt, it was now time to restore worship for them. And it means the same thing for us, that it was both volitional, right? They're choosing to do it. And it was rooted in a deep appreciation of the Scriptures, of God's Word. them right so if we are to worship the Lord we must consistently open our hearts to receive the scripture God's word as true for us he initiates a turn back to the Lord by calling for worship fostered by this reading of a list of these people who would return from exile in chapter 7 verse 6 through 65 and it stirred their hearts Because the people could see their own history. You know, it it spoke of God's provision and His deliverance of Israel over all these years. And as they prepared to worship, people gave to the work of the temple so worship could begin again. And they gather and they read this law by Ezra. And each scene in chapters 7 through 10 of Nehemiah captures this essence of a community that is learning to worship God again as God had moved to rebuild the temple and rebuild these walls for protection in order to foster this worship. In Christ, our whole self has been fully restored due to His work on the cross. We reside right now, under His protection, with the Holy Spirit as our seal, we are the temple of God now. This scene here is a a, a scene of covenant renewal. 
And the beauty of it is that the people wanted it. They called for it. They arrived in unity as one people to worship the Lord, to hear what God had to say to them. A critical part of worship is the willingness of people to come and intentionally listen with open hearts. As the people stood, Ezra read the law from a platform, and the people listened attentively, right? They were reminded once again of the power of God's Word and the power of His commands to them. And this was not some new thing. This was not some new manifesto, right? But it was, they, they were the, the foundational articles of faith the, the, with full divine authority, right? Laid down at Exodus. In our context, when the gospel, which originated back in Genesis, which we've learned in the past few, few weeks, is spoken over us, and when that is received by faith, What the Lord does is He declares. He declares us righteous in Christ. It's His decision. He declares that. Now, if you lived in medieval England, right, and the king stepped out of his palace one morning and he, you know, he just, you know, declared some criminal free, let him out of jail, and, you know, that all of his crimes have been absolved and he's under his personal protection now, and that everyone is to receive this man as if he were totally innocent. That would be it. You knew that the king's word goes, right? Everyone would have to treat that man that way. That would be it. And the same is true for us. The old is gone, the new has come. Owning that, when when we can get that, we can grasp it, worship flows very naturally as God becomes central to our hearts. Worship flowing out of us in continual prayer, continual thanksgiving. So symbolizing God as central to life now, they meet right there in the heart of the city. And Ezra and these other men led the reading of the law and they explained what what they were reading and others moved among the crowd to explain the meaning of the text because people need that, right? It tells us that we need our teachers, we need our shepherds to break apart the word, to remind us of these things, to encourage us us in these things because we tend to drift. Hebrews 2.1 says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We have a tendency to drift. But from now on, the Jews would be predominantly the people of a book. At the original dedication of Solomon's temple, there had been glory and beauty and natural and supernatural to overwhelm the worshipers. But here, the focus was on a scroll, a scroll, or more exactly, what was written on the scroll. And its opening brought those people to their feet. And the people celebrated God by proclaiming His Word as true for them. And then they fall face down in worship, flowing from gratitude of God's promises. It's a big deal. When the preaching of Scripture is at the heart of a community, God moves. God moves. 
In one story, Benjamin Franklin, our old Benjamin Franklin, didn't much agree with George Whitfield. George Whitfield was this famous itinerant preacher way back when, but he didn't really agree with him. But he had never listened to a sermon before. But when he went and heard him preach one time, Ben Franklin wrote this, I happened soon after to attend one of his sermons in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with the collection to gather money, right? And I silently resolved he should get nothing from me, right? He's not going to give a dime. And I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five Spanish gold coins. And as he proceeded, I began to soften and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that and determined to give him the silver as well. And he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, coppers, silver, gold, and all. Now, I would say that Franklin was not moved by George Whitfield, but by the preaching of God's Word through George Whitfield. And he gave all he had that day. All that he could give, he gave that day, right? To be open to the worship of which we're called in the Scriptures, there must be sort of an ongoing soul care in us, right? In addressing Luke 10.27, which says, the love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Dallas Willard says this. He says, this commandment does, doesn't so much tell us what we must do as to what we must cultivate in the care of our souls. This is true for all believers. Our high calling and sacrificial service can can find adequate support only in a personality totally saturated with God's kind of love. Willard explains how this process works by focusing on practicing the presence of God in our lives. He said, the good tree, Jesus said, bears good fruit. If we tend to the tree, the fruit will take care of itself. Isn't that true? If we tend to the tree the fruit will take care of itself. And this is, these are lessons that pastors learn at 55-plus years old, years of age. We're, we're still learning these things. All of us are still learning these things. We can't just act as if we love God with all our whole beings and our neighbors as ourselves. We can't. Without the love of God indwelling us, filling us up, that would be an impossible burden that would make us angry and hopeless over time. We might be able to fake it a little bit for a while, but then suddenly it'll come out of us. This divine love is, in the words of Jesus, a well of water springing up to eternal life. And from those possessed of divine love, there truly flows rivers of living water to a thirsty world all around them. That's what I want to be. That's the kind of person I want to be. The quality of our souls will indelibly touch others for good or for ill, right? So we must never forget the most important thing happening at any moment of time in the midst of all that we do is the kind of person we are becoming in Christ. The kind of person we're becoming in Christ. 
God intends our lives to be a seamless sort of manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the things in Galatians chapter 5, right? And that, my friends, is a life of worship. He's made abundant provision for His indwelling of our lives in the here and now. Appropriate attention sort of to the care of our souls through His empowerment will yield this rich spiritual fruit and deliver us from this sad list of the deeds of the flesh. We can be channels of the grace of the risen Christ. And through our ministry, Jesus can minister to others but we must attend to the means of His grace in practical and specific ways to experience His life in and through our lives, right? And the first and most basic thing that we do is to keep Jesus at the forefront of all that we are and do. David knew this. Psalm 16, 8 and 9, I have set the Lord continually before me, Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also also will dwell securely. That's a solid life right there. That's courage. None of this victimhood, none of this anxiety, none of this fear. Keep Jesus before you. He's doing the battles. He's doing the rebuilding. He's doing all the stuff. Just keep Him before you. In that state, our minds will return to God as sort of the needle of a compass returns to the north, right? If God is the great longing of our souls, He'll become sort of the pole star of our inward beings all the time. As God said to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. If your life seems like a mess, these are the answers. Meditation on Him and His Word must be integral to our lives. As the living and written word occupy our minds, we naturally come to to love God more because we see clearly and constantly just how lovely and great He is. Worship then becomes the constant undertone in our lives. The constant undertone. Complaining doesn't happen. Backbiting doesn't happen. Gossip doesn't happen. Angry outbursts don't happen. Things like that. The single most powerful force in completing and sustaining restoration of our whole beings to God. That's what worship is. Nothing can inform or guide and sustain pervasive and radiant goodness in a person other than the true vision of God and the worship which arises out of that. And then, the power of the indwelling Christ flows out from us to others. In the last three weeks, 
become magical that we learned about how to share the gospel. So we're not just trying to worship. It's not just another job that we do. It's not just another Christian thing that we do. It's one aspect of the gift of living water which springs up to eternal life and overflows out of us. Romans 15, 13. Our part is to turn our minds towards God, attending to His graceful actions in our souls. Then, love and worship flow as we walk constantly with Him. Stepping with Him in the flow of His grace, we live then, in spontaneity, loving our neighbors when we're, when we're confronted with them, ministering the word and ministering the power of the gospel over people. That's when you don't fret and grit your teeth to witness to people. He will simply pour out of you. If somebody gets near you, they get a little Jesus on them, you know? When people return to true worship, it can be seen in the way that they respond to the Word of God. The Scriptures hold such an important place in the lives of followers because they point to God's action among creation. He must be willing, or we must be willing, I'm sorry, to to, uh, allow the Scriptures space to run free in our lives. Because when the Scriptures are given that space, then God takes His rightful place on the throne of our hearts where He is worshipped with every fiber of our being. So get into it. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we, we come before You as, as fickle people. We know we are. and Praise You for Your Gospel. Praise You that you have covered even that. That my sins, past, present, and future, have been covered by you. That I've legally been declared righteous. That you are changing me. That you are making me holy. And I don't want to fight against that process. None of us do. So we give ourselves once again to you. We renew this commitment to walk well with you, to trust you, to remember that these things are important and they have very, very, very practical uh, implications on our lives, our relationships, and on the world around us. We want to be the people of the book. We want to be the people that when others get around us, they are just gobsmacked (laughs) with you, with your love, and with your holiness. And in Christ's name we pray.